I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. I've been talking about the idea of reproductive justice on the podcast for years, starting with my very first episode with Dr. Laura Briggs in our discussion about her book, How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. It's a really excellent book, and it covers the intersection of politics, reproductive rights, and social justice. On today's episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Christelle Littlejohn, and we discuss her new book titled, Just Get on the Pill. The book argues that there's an uneven burden placed on people who give birth and that they're held accountable for preventing and resolving pregnancies in gender-constrained ways. Now, this is a branch of reproductive justice that I was unfamiliar with before reading this book. It was truly eye-opening. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with professor and author, Dr. Crystal Littlejohn. Dr. Crystal Littlejohn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you open your book with a story of a woman. I think her name was Manuela, right? And you actually pepper your book with personal stories like hers. No, but this one I think really synthesizes the problematic narratives around birth control. I'm curious as to, you know, what elements of her story that you thought demonstrated, you know, what's wrong with our current approach to pregnancy prevention. Thank you so much for, for this question. Um, I, I loved Manuela's story because I think it really reflected the experiences of so many women that I write about in the book. And the key with Manuela's story is that we might hear her story, we hear that she's on the pill, we assume that things are going well, that it means that she has a method that is helping her prevent pregnancy the way that she wants to. Uh, but then when you start to dig into the details, you realize that there's much more to the story than, than that and that her experience is actually much more fraught. And and so starting with the experience of Manuela, uh, she talks about using uh, the pill and condoms with her partners and then having challenges with getting her, her partners to wear condoms the way that she wants to. And uh, then having challenges with her partners not respecting her desires to not use the pill. And I think when you look at how her experiences, how her experience compares to lots of other people's experiences in the book, you recognize that. They have a great deal of challenges getting their partners to use uh, condoms the way that they'd like to. Um, and there's this assumption that they should have to use prescription birth control. And I think it's really striking because we talk a lot about the pill as liberatory and it, it absolutely is. I like to make I want to make really clear from the very beginning that I think birth control is incredibly important and that everybody should have access to birth control. And they should be able to use birth control methods to prevent pregnancy the way that they'd like to. Uh, but the key is the way that they'd like to. And what Manuela's experience and other women's experiences demonstrated is that many women are not having this experience of using birth control freely. And instead, they, they feel coerced and pressured into doing so. And that's not what a liberatory birth control politics looks like. No, absolutely not. And the thing that was so meaningful for me with reading her story and the other stories in the book is that I think a lot of readers will have this experience that I saw my own experiences reflected in their stories, experiences that I hadn't thought about before as being, you know, questionable, like, oh, you know, should I have behaved that way? Like, why was I taught these things? And I think that's probably one of the most meaningful, profound things that I got out of the book. I'm delighted to hear it. And I think that is uh, absolutely an experience that I hear from lots of people that, that read the book uh, or when I've presented my work in at different conferences. Folks across the spectrum tell me that they see their stories reflected in the book. I've taught the work in my classes before, and I actually had a student who was kind of devouring the book and, and said to me, you know, this book is literally my life. And I think there has been nothing more profound for me than seeing that I wrote a book that 
has participants that, you know, nobody there, they're all pseudonyms. You don't know who they are. These folks don't know the readers. But when people who read the book tell me that it feels like it is a story of their life, it is as I mentioned, profound, but also sometimes heartbreaking, right? When you think about the stories that appear in the book and how hard people have to fight to be able to use their birth control freely and not to feel pressured, it can sometimes feel feel heartbreaking to hear people say that that it, that it reflects their experiences. But I think it reflects the broader issues that we have around gender inequality in our society. And it demonstrates how much it touches so many people's lives. Right. And and there's a phrase that you coined in the book, and it's gendered compulsory birth control. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. Gendered compulsory birth control is about the intense social pressure to prevent pregnancy that we apply only to people who can get pregnant and not to their partners. And what I found in the book and what I found in the study is that even though people wanted to use birth control to prevent pregnancy they and to do that freely, they face these messages from our society, from their parents, from their friends, from their doctors that suggested not just that the birth control pill and other methods is a good method to use to prevent pregnancy, but instead that suggested that it was the method that they should be using and that they needed to be the ones to prevent pregnancy. And their partners really got off the hook for any level of accountability for helping them do so. And so gendered compulsory birth control felt like a really apt term to describe this phenomenon where people who can get pregnant are are compelled to use birth control and their partners don't have to have to do anything to support them and they don't face social accountability for doing so. Yeah, you know, again, I'm still thinking about how our stories are reflected in books like this. And I think it's so important in the context of what's happening right now in the country with, you know, reproductive justice, specifically abortion rights and those, you know, protections and those, you know, access to an abortion being rolled back, you know, in Texas, for instance, and that that's the big story right now. Right. And thinking about younger people and younger generations, not necessarily knowing what they are, you know, what their what their rights should be or what questions they should ask, right? I was thinking about all of the abortion activists I know are kind of, you know, older women, not necessarily older women, but women who are, you know, who have some experience. So, you know, they're beyond college, you know, maybe they're well within their professional lives. It makes me curious as to what the younger generation, you know, Gen Z, you know, what they think about reproductive justice and what they think about their rights in the same way that I did not know when I was a teenager to ask these questions about birth control, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I, I, I think it's so important for people to read these books and for the younger generation to read these books. So they'll know before, you know, they get well into their lives to know what questions they should be asking right now about their autonomy. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And as I was looking at uh, these women's experiences and, ta- and talking with them during interviews, I just felt really struck by that very issue, right? How many of them didn't know what questions to ask to help them lead the the sex lives that they were hoping to lead. And it really started to get me to think about what an empowered experience using the pill actually looks like. And I think that many people may not know the answer to that question, but I think that's a question that we have to be focused on, right? We focus uh, heavily on access because access is incredibly important, but I think we also need to be focusing on autonomy and recognize when our social messaging about birth control crosses the line from empowering people to feel like they can use birth control to empowering others to feel like they can control what people do with birth control. 
control. And that's what Just Get on the Pill really gets at, this notion that people are being told that they should just get on the pill and that it is their job to do so without inappropriate recognition of the fact that they have reproductive autonomy. Maybe they don't like the pill. Maybe they have challenges getting partners to wear condoms if, the par- if their partners know they're on the pill. And I'm saying maybe here, but these are things that I found in the book, right? These are things that actually happen. There's, you know, women who mention not telling partners that they're using prescription birth control because once their partners knew that they were on prescription birth control, then they might feel like they didn't have to wear condoms and they could start really resisting it. And so when I think about what an empowered experience using the pill looks like, it means that people know where they can find the pill and other methods of birth control but also that they feel free to use the pill or not use the pill and that they feel free to use condoms and to assert that their partners use condoms and that they have those things respected. And I think I'll just add really briefly that I also think it's really important to focus on people's experiences having sex in an enjoyable fashion and a way that makes them feel like they are getting what they want out of their sexual experiences. I think especially in public health, the messaging is so focused on helping people prevent pregnancy that we focus much less on whether or not people are enjoying their sex lives as they want to when they're using birth control. And so when we think about what it means to be an empowered pill user, I think we need to think really squarely about reproductive autonomy, but also about sexual satisfaction and the ways that birth control can be used to experience that. No, you're absolutely right. That's an excellent point because, I mean, how enjoyable can it be when you're like always anxious about pregnancy prevention, right? Right. Um, but what you just described is is labor. And I really want to emphasize that because I don't think, and including myself, I don't think a lot of people and a lot of, you know, you know, people who, you know, have pregnancies think about this as emotional labor and as domestic labor. And you describe it as domestic labor in the book. Can you explain, because I think this really gets to the heart of what you're talking about. Can you explain how this is like domestic labor? Absolutely. And I, I love I love this idea because one of the things that I really emphasize is that we challenge gendered inequality in other aspects of domestic labor, and we just don't see gender inequality in birth control as being reflective of that. So when what I discuss in Just Get on the Pill is this idea that when it comes to people's experiences preventing pregnancy using prescription birth control, we might take it for granted as just being something that women and people who can get pregnant should do. But in reality, this is a form of gendered domestic labor that is heaped on their plate even as it's hidden, even as the labor that they do is hidden from the general public. And so when it comes to the labor that people are doing, we're talking about going to get the methods. We're talking about remembering to take the methods, remembering to use the methods, uh, or remembering to go to appointments, right, for to get something like the shot. We're talking about the side effects that people dealt with. And so side effect, you know, I have a, a chapter in the book that gets into women's experiences with dissatisfaction and side effects are a big part of that dissatisfaction. And so when they're really struggling to use a method that is giving them spotting, that is giving them irregular bleeding, right? That's something that we just take for granted as something that they should have to tolerate. But when you look at the fact that so many of them wanted their partners to use condoms and for the partner wearing the condom, the only inconvenience potentially is wearing the condom during intercourse. Uh, But for the people using prescription birth control methods, If they're dealing with side effects, it happens 
throughout their experience, right? It happens be way beyond the sexual encounter. And further, for, for some of them, they have to develop strategies to help them figure out how to mitigate those side effects. And so I'm thinking about this one participant who discussed having to take her pill at night because she would get really bad nausea. And so she would just take the pill at night so that she wouldn't have to deal with the nausea so that she'd actually just be able to sleep through it. And these are just the kinds of stories that you rarely ever hear. We hear so much about men, uh, some men not liking condoms, and we rarely hear about women's experiences with not liking their prescription methods in ways that are much more global, right? In ways that affect their lives way beyond just the moment of sexual interaction. And so I really tried to uncover those stories for people reading the book to demonstrate that prescription birth control use can help people prevent pregnancy, but it can also create a series of challenges for them in their lives, and that can shape their decisions not to use it. And so even though we hear this rhetoric sometimes about people who are not using birth control and how that can be damaging and make it hard for them to prevent pregnancy, we don't hear about the reasons why they might not be using birth control are the ways that ideas about gendered domestic labor can support a compulsory birth control system that really takes away people's reproductive autonomy. I don't want to gloss over this because some of the side effects are pretty serious. Like it's a small percentage of people who have blood clots, for instance, but that's life-threatening, right? Right. No, I I absolutely appreciate it. And I think it, it really makes us think about people's experiences using the methods and the idea that different people are going to place different emphases on these various aspects of use. And so there are going to be some people who will say there is a small, you know, a very small risk of blood clots, but that could be me and I'm just not comfortable with that. And so I'm not going to use the pill. And there should be support for that, right? There should be support for people who say that they don't want to use a prescription form of birth control and that they're going to use condoms with their partners. But instead, there tends to be this emphasis on how condoms are ineffective, right? If you really want to prevent pregnancy, the kind of rhetoric goes, you have to be on a prescription birth control method. And what I really try to emphasize and and what I think is really important for us to recognize is that condoms are quite technically effective, right? It's, it's, it's not that condoms themselves are not effective. It's that they are not effective, obviously, if people don't use them consistently and correctly. And I want to make this point clear that the pill and other methods also wouldn't be effective if people didn't use them consistently or correctly, right? But we put a great deal of pressure on women and people who can get pregnant to make sure that they use their birth control methods and that they use them consistently. So one of the things that I think about is how many of the women talked about the different strategies that they had to make sure that they took their pill on time, right? So instead of just saying, you know, I have trouble taking the pill, I'm not going to take it. We devise all of these things that people can do to help them remember to do it. Set your alarm, right? Take it at the same time every day. Make sure you maybe you should take it when you're going to get ready to brush your teeth, right? We do all of these things to provide a great deal of social support so that they can actually use their methods. But when it comes to condom use, we just tend to accept this rhetoric that, well, condoms are just not as effective, so people should use prescription birth control. And I just I want to make sure it's clear to everybody that the reason why people say that condoms aren't effective is because they're not being used consistently and correctly. And as as I just mentioned, that's also related to the lack of social accountability for making sure that partners do so, right? Imagine what our 
society might look like and imagine what, what women and people who can get pregnant, imagine what their experiences would look like if instead of just saying, you know, some people don't like condoms, so you should just get on the pill, right? Imagine what their experiences would look like if we said your partner should use condoms and you have a right to make sure that they do so. Your recourse shouldn't just be having to get on the pill. I think that's a really powerful statement. And I think it's a it's a really powerful indictment of the experiences that people have right now, right? That's not the the landscape that they find and that's not the social messaging that they encounter. Again, I I don't want to also gloss over the emotional labor, the emotional friction there for women having to negotiate with their partners over something that could change the trajectory of their lives, right? You know, just trying to get someone to wear a condom, right? There's a lot of labor there. There's a lot of emotional friction there. And her life could be changed forever if it doesn't work, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And you see this over and over again in the book where when people decide not to get on birth control or they decide, you know, I tell the story of of one woman in the book who decides that she wants to stop taking the pill and have her partner go back to using condoms. And it created a a really big hoopla for, for her and for them, right? Her partner was not happy with it. And, you know, they get into they get into an altercation over it because he wants her to stay on the pill so that he doesn't have to wear condoms. Um, And so when you think about the emotional labor that relationships generally entail, right, you can imagine how having conflict over using birth control and and preventing pregnancy can just add one more issue uh, that that women have to deal with. And I think one more thing that's related to gendered ideas that they have to navigate where women's socialization oftentimes encourages them to assault, you know, to make, to just kind of give in to what their partners want, because the idea is that that's what women do, right? Women's, women's job is to cater to their partner's interests. And obviously we try and challenge that every day with our social messaging and and the work that we do with our families and friends, but it doesn't mean that it it doesn't affect people's lives and that it, that is an easy experience for them to go through. Right. And and since we're talking about condoms, I really want to talk about the chapter. You have a chapter titled His Condom. And this is another really nuanced point, um, something that I learned from the book or, or had never thought about before. But the problematic gendered framing around, you know, whose responsibility a condom is. Can, can you talk about that? Because there's a story in the book where I think um, a woman was recalling, you know, when she was first taught about birth control and it was her mother or her sister said, you know, make sure he wears a condom. Right. Mm-hmm. But no one no one told her you know, like how, you know, she should access a condom or how she could get access to a condom or it was just like, make sure he wears one. And that was the end of the discussion. It's his condom, but the prescription birth control is assigned by gender to women. Can you explain why that framing is problematic? The idea that condoms or external condoms are a man's method to wear has tremendous implications for women's experiences being able to protect themselves from disease and from pregnancy. And so just like you were mentioning, it came up over and over again that his condom is his thing, right? That external condoms are a man's thing to worry about. And it's not uh, something that women have to deal with. And that had really harmful consequences for women. First of all, the external condom is the most popular condom on the market. It is also less expensive than the internal condom or what's typically called the female condom. And so when you have the most popular <laughs> the most popular condom 
being assigned to men and you have people believing that it's a man's method, right? The, the ways that we, that we see women interacting with them start to make a lot more sense, right? So when we start to think about how few women feel comfortable buying and bringing condoms, that wasn't surprising to me when I thought about this gender socialization, right? They see condoms as a man's method. They see condoms as something that men have to worry about. They talked about that being his thing to worry about. And so they largely didn't think about it, right? They oftentimes didn't bring condoms, which could then create challenges, obviously, because if they expected their partners to bring condoms and they didn't, they might end up in a sexual encounter where there was no condom available and then have to make a decision on the spot about what they wanted to do. And so the framing around condoms being a man's method, as I show in the book, might sound intuitive to people, but I, I, I make the point that it comes into contact with both partners' genitals. It just so happens to be worn on one partner's body. But that doesn't mean that it has to be understood as a method that is fundamentally the man's method. You know, if we think about other aspects of gender, right, we talk about, uh, then I, I bring up the point in the book about pants, right? Pants as being for men to wear. And there was a time when we thought that pants belonged to men and that women shouldn't wear them. And what happened when we, when we thought that, right? Women were much less likely to wear pants. But once we changed that messaging, suddenly, right, women are not only wearing dresses. We start to see that they wear pants and pants are much more comfortable for many people. And so when, I, when it comes to birth control, I think about it in the same terms, right, where there's this emphasis on condoms being a man's method, but that doesn't have to be the way that it is. And for many people, having condoms understood as their method for people who can get pregnant, that would actually make their lives a lot more comfortable, too. The key is really interrogating that logic and interrupting those messages that occur not only in people's personal relationships, but also in public health, where it's typical to call the external condom, the male condom, and to send these messages that they belong to men and that's something that men should have to manage. Right. This isn't just a silly question, but like, <laughs> I'm never, where do you even get female con- Where? Did, they don't sell them. <laughs> they aren't as, as, as accessible or I've never seen one in a store, I don't think. Right. This is, it's, a, it's a fascinating and important idea, right? So they are sold over the counter uh, and you can find them in the, the condom aisle where you find external condoms, but it could be the case that not everybody carries them. It could be the case that people don't know where to look. It could be the case that it doesn't even occur to people as something that they should look for. Uh, and that did come up in the book where female condoms, you know, internal condoms were really an afterthought for for many women. It didn't occur to them as something that they would use. And some of them talked about potentially using them in the future, but it was always hypothetical. It was often hypothetical and something that they might consider doing down the line, but something that few of them had actually tried to do. Yeah. So I just want to talk about this in the framework of reproductive justice. How does this all fall into that framework? Yes. So I... I, think it's really important to emphasize that prevention justice is reproductive justice as reproductive justice activists have been advocating for. And so when we think about condoms or sometimes people think about reproductive justice and they might imagine that it is only about preventing pregnancy or it is only about making sure that people can have access to an abortion. 
and along with the other tenets of reproductive justice, including having the right to raise children in safe and healthy environments. But one of the important things that activists have also encouraged and emphasized is the idea that people have a right to be healthy, right? And so when it comes to thinking about prevention justice, the fact that Black women in particular face challenges, right, with making sure that they can protect themselves from sexually transmitted infections and making sure that they don't have to have concerns over contracting HIV when we emphasize and center condom use as something that is vital to their reproductive health and is something that is a right that they have access to as a part of reproductive justice, it really underscores the centrality of thinking about people's bodily autonomy. And bodily autonomy is not only about preventing pregnancy, it's also fundamentally about having full control over their bodies, including control over not contracting uh, an infection or a disease. And so even though it's something that's taken for granted, condom use and really asserting people's right to bodily autonomy or having their partners wear them was crucial. It struck me as something that was incredibly important while I was doing the research for this book. Right. So what are some other ways that this is kind of a, a, a racial justice issue, right? I mean, I know that, you know, white women and Asian women and black women and Latino women, just to name a few groups, they experience this whole thing differently. What are a few ways that this becomes an issue of race and gender? Yes. So in the book, I really highlight the centrality of negative messaging around the reproduction of women of color and marginalized women. And I would extend and I would say marginalized folks more generally. And so when we're thinking about these women's experiences, the key is to really keep in mind that, for example, Black women, their fertility has been demonized in the general discourse, right? There's from talking about Black women being welfare queens, to talking about Black women being hypersexual, right? There's all of this rhetoric and these mythologies around what they're actually doing in their sex lives. And there is stigma around different reproductive behaviors. And the key thing is to think about what that means for how they experience birth control, right? And so instead of it just being this notion, as you find with with white women historically, really having to fight for their right to to limit their fertility, right, via abortion, for Black women and other marginalized people, they've really had to fight for their right to have children, right, and to not be coerced into using prescription birth control or not be coerced into getting sterilized. And so this absolutely is a racial issue because even as we have seen some of the overt rhetoric around race disappear from the discourse, there is uh, this more subtle way that race comes into play because when we talk about the importance of preventing unintended pregnancy from a public health perspective, there's this heavy emphasis on preventing unintended pregnancy. And there's not mention of race there, but when you look at the data, it breaks down into marginalized women being more likely to have unintended pregnancies, as they're called. And so there is this really pernicious way that race ends up still playing out in birth control politics is just much more hidden than it was in the past, right? So you don't have this overt messaging around getting Black women and getting poor women to stop having babies, but you see it playing out more subtly, right, by just saying it's really important that we reduce the 
percentage of unintended pregnancies. We need to get as many people as possible to use highly effective birth control methods like the IUD, for example. And that might not seem raced, but it's absolutely raced and it's absolutely classed because when you look at the data, those women are the women that are most likely to have an unintended pregnancy. And we don't think about the context that might generate those experiences, right? We might, we don't, and I'm, I'm happy to talk more about this, more about the ways that we focus on preventing unintended pregnancies versus saying what makes a pregnancy undesired in the first place and what are differences across social context and conditions that make it such that some women like lower income women, like black and, and, and Latinas, what are their, their conditions that might make them label a pregnancy undesired versus assuming that they're doing something wrong by having an unintended pregnancy and assuming that the that the Solution has to be getting them on prescription birth control. Speaking of, you know, unintended pregnancies, there is an interesting statistic in the book. I, I don't know the number offhand, but it was around unintended pregnancies. It's actually higher than I expected. So what role does this whole conversation have with unintended pregnancies? Yeah. So when it comes to birth control, it is seen as the as a panacea, right? So this idea is that if we can just get people to prevent unintended pregnancies, then we could reduce poverty, right? We can improve childhood outcomes. There's all of these ideas about how we can solve various social problems using birth control. So the rhetoric and the discourse is that poverty, for example, is a consequence of people having unintended pregnancies versus, as I was mentioning, poverty might make it where people label their pregnancies undesired, right? It could be the case that people who are impoverished are less, they have less access to being able to label their pregnancies desired in the first place. And so rather than trying to focus on getting them to use prescription birth control so that they can stop having undesired pregnancies, from a reproductive justice standpoint, my philosophy is that we can focus on the conditions that they experience so that we can improve those conditions. And then they too might be able to talk about their pregnancies being desired. And so even though the standard messaging is that we need to get people on prescription birth control methods that are so highly effective and that are so good at preventing pregnancy, the idea is that we need to focus on doing that to reduce unintended pregnancy. The reality is that getting people to use prescription birth control is unlikely to solve the social problems that people who make that argument believe they're going to solve, right? It's in my perspective, in my view, getting a bunch of people on birth control is not going to solve poverty because people aren't poor because they don't use birth control, right? People are poor because the structures in our society prevent them from being able to obtain upward mobility as we're seeing during the pandemic, right? I think the pandemic has really exposed the structural issues that prevent people from being able to have jobs that allow them to have a stable living. And the birth control and, and, and unintended pregnancy just ends up being a site where we see these bigger debates playing out and where there seems to be an easy solution for poverty, but the reality is that that's, that's a myth, right? It's, it's not the case that this is the solution to poverty. It might seem like an easy solution to poverty, but oftentimes things that seem easy are misguided. And that is absolutely the case in this situation from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation because I think, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, some people don't really want to solve the, the poverty issue. They want to solve the, you know, access issue or they want to, you know, 
control access to reproductive, you know, health, but absolutely. You know, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> like they're fine. They don't want to solve the poverty issue. They just don't want certain people to have babies, but that is true. <laughs> that is absolutely true. I 100% agree with that. Well, so you lay out some, some solutions at the end, right? What are a couple of the top ones that you, that you lay out and, and what will we gain if we were to have those? The biggest thing is changing the discourse around birth control in general and rejecting this perspective that suggests that birth control has to be gendered. And so we can see this playing out in a variety of different ways when it comes to condom use, as I mentioned in the book. The key is to stop gendering condoms and to stop attaching condoms to particular people's bodies. We can talk about external and internal condoms as more popular now and still leave the condoms being discussed clear, even as we don't gender them in ways that are going to be harmful for people. When it comes to gendering birth control responsibility, it's also the case that we have to move away from it. So I, I saw story after story of parents and mothers telling their daughters to get on prescription birth control and really going out of their way to help their daughters get prescription birth control, but doing very little in the way of helping them get condoms. And so we need to definitely move away from doing that because it creates challenges for, for these women being able to protect themselves from disease. And I would also add here, that we also need to move away from this because it excludes a whole segment of the population. If we think about prescription birth control as being for women and condoms as being for men, right? We know that there are trans and intersex folks whose experiences are not reflected in that language and not reflected in that discourse. And when we completely exclude them from the discourse in general, obviously that makes it more difficult to make sure that their needs are getting met when they go in to get health care. And so more largely, the move to stop gendering birth control will reverberate and have positive consequences for people across the gender spectrum and also can help reduce people's challenges with preventing disease. And we know that STIs have skyrocketed in the United States. And lastly, I'd also say that we need to change the way that we manage sex education, not just to give people access to knowledge about various contraceptive methods, but also to give people access to an empowered sex education curriculum so that they can recognize the signs of coercion in their relationships, so they can learn about how to have healthy, respectful satisfactory sexual experiences. And that's, we're just so far from achieving that in this country that I think, but it doesn't mean it's not possible, right? And so I think we need to focus on these kinds of changes that we can make. And even though it might be more of a challenge to make those changes in schools, this is definitely something that people can work on in their families, right? So making sure that families and friends have conversations around what equality in sexual relationships looks like so that birth control use can be more equitable, but also so that sexual satisfaction and pleasure can achieve the same level of equity that I would hope we could achieve in birth control use. No, no, you're absolutely right. We are far from it. But, you know, books like this, which I think are, again, you know, so important to our discourse around reproductive justice, they're a start, right? And I and I have faith that, you know, these conversations will spread. And, you know, I appreciate you. I appreciate you for writing this. And thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Thank you so much. It was fantastic talking with you. And I really appreciate you having me on the show.